rows, including, as I mentioned at the beginning, the unnamed, or some unnamed ones. Um, so here's a poem, kind of. Where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and turn and dream of what I need. That sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> no? Okay, so the rest of it, um, I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero. Okay, there's a clue in my emphasis there. Yeah, Bonnie Tyler. Okay, I didn't put it on at the beginning because you would have known. So Bonnie Tyler, it's from the film Footloose in 1984. You all, no, maybe you didn't all, but maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> okay, but this talks about the world's expectation of a hero. You know, he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero till the morning light. I mean, it's, it's great poetry, obviously. Um, but this is kind of an aspect of, of what a hero is. Okay, but, okay, we, we might chuckle a little bit at that and think it's, you know, slightly over the top and unrealistic. But, okay, the world has expectations about heroes. And actually, we do too. So do we think the hero has to be big and strong or beautiful or special in some way? Well, maybe. That is one type of hero. But what about a godly hero? What, what does that person look like? What does she or he look like? Well, it's a bit daunting when you think about heroes. I mean, the, the, the heroes in the Bonnie Tyler version or heroes in a more general sense you know, sporting heroes. I don't know if any of you have watched the World Cup, Rugby World Cup, not the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, those guys, I mean, they are so muscly and they don't feel any pain, it seems. They're a kind of hero. Um, but that's none of us. None of us are like that. Um, but other heroes, you know, uh, a hero, I mean, that word is, is often overused. So the heroes in the NHS during the COVID pandemic. Okay, a lot of people did a lot of hard, hard things. That's heroism in a different way. Um, pop star heroes, film heroes. You know, we all have some perception of a hero. But I would suggest that most of us, possibly none of us, fit that bill as a hero. Maybe. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh there. Maybe, maybe some of you are more heroic than, than I realise. That's quite possible. And I, you know, I'm certainly not any of those things. But what, what about a hero of faith? So there's that section in Hebrews, in fact, Robin preached on it in this series. You know, you look at the heroes of faith in the Old Testament particularly, you know, they did amazing things, absolutely amazing. And they are really, really good examples for us to see what the hero can do. And we've been thinking about the unsung heroes in this whole series. Um, and both the unsung heroes in the Bible and the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews, well, they all show qualities that God wants. And a hero, you know, like a, a football star or a film star or whatever, when we think about them, it's all about them. You know, and the very phrase, a film star, 
you know, well, they're a star because the film, you know, is mostly about them. So whether that's, you know, the return of the Jedi, we have to have a Star Wars illustration, sorry. Okay, it's about Luke Skywalker. He is the hero. It's all about him. Now, the heroes of faith, yes, it is about Abraham or Gideon or whoever, but they point to what God has done. Okay, so it's not all about them. And the unsung heroes, it's not about them either. But if we think about the qualities that God wants, we do see those qualities in the heroes, sung or unsung. But do we think about what qualities do we need to, or what do we need to be like, or what do we need to do to please God? So if you're a hero, are you pleasing yourself? Maybe. Maybe a hero has a bit of ego. If you're a hero of faith, maybe you're trying to please God. Well, hopefully we are. But we often don't see ourselves as heroes. But we do need to approach God. And in fact, all of us, the very fact that we're in church means that we want to meet with God in some way. That's a really good thing. But when we come to meet God, what do we think he expects? What do we need to do? Or what do we need to be like to please him? And that's a more challenging thought because if we're even a little bit honest, we probably would recognize that we fall short you know, certainly of God's standards and even of our own standards in terms of how we might please God. So what does it take to measure up to please God? So what qualities would God expect us to have if we're going to meet with him? So these things, should we be good, kind, upright, moral, nice? Is that what it takes to to please God? So those are not bad things. And in fact, God does want us to be good and kind and gentle and upright and moral. I'm not sure about nice. That's a rather limp word. Um, So God does want us to be like that. But is that what it takes? Is that really the requirement to meet with God? And if it is, does that tell us something about what God is like? After all, if he expects those things... That tells us, okay, something about us, but also something about him. But actually, it probably tells us more about what we think he's like, not necessarily what he's really like. So, for example, if if we thought, honestly, that God just wanted us to be nice, and actually, you'd be surprised, a lot of people, you know, neighbours, family, they probably would say that. God expects us to be nice. And that's, if you're nice, then, you, then you're on God's side because God likes nice people. And equally, if you're not nice, then you've, you've had it. Now, that isn't telling us anything true about God. That's revealing what we think God is like, which, as we'll see in a bit, is not the way it is. Okay, so all this hero stuff, heroes in the world in Bonnie Tyler's song, 
um, heroes of star, you know, stage and screen or football pitch or rugby pitch, whatever. Heroes in the Bible. Well, today's passage talks about the unnamed heroes. So these, the people who are the stars, if you like, of this passage, they don't get a name. They are, quotes, just ordinary church members. Okay? So this passage, you know, who the heroes are, it's people like us. Just church members, ordinary church members. So uh, let's, well, actually, not quite. I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we see the passage, read the passage, this passage, yes, it tells us about us, but actually it tells us much, much more about what God is like. It shows us God's heart in a way which is kind of surprising. Um, it does tell us about ourselves, and because of that, it tells us how we relate to God and also how we should relate to each other. Okay, so we'll get to that as we go through. Okay, so this is the passage, and it's, it's in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. And we'll look at the verses, mostly these verses, but we'll also look at a few before and a few just after. So let's, let's read this. Brothers and sisters, so this is, this is Paul writing to the church, sorry. So, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let anyone who boasts boast in the Lord. Okay, so Paul writes to these Christians, to ordinary church members, i.e. people like us, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Okay, so what were we when we were called? What were they? Well, he gives a bit of a clue. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential and not many were of noble birth. Does that sound familiar to us? Not many of you were wise? Nope. Not many of you were influential? No. Nope. And I suspect none of you, none of us, were of noble birth. Okay? So this, this is us. Okay? So... Interestingly, you know, we live in a city where wisdom and knowledge is prized. You may have noticed that. But actually, it doesn't count for anything. It's not what God's interested in. These folk here in, in Corinth and, and us today, 
they weren't called, called to be Christians, called to know Jesus because they were wise or influential or of noble birth. Those things that the, their society valued counted for nothing. And when we approach God, you know, that list of things to be good and nice and all the rest of it, those things that society has gives some value to, those are not the things that God gives value to when he's calling people to know him. You don't have to be wise or influential or of noble birth. In fact, as we'll see in a second, those things might actually be a barrier. So, we can read this to each other virtually. Brothers and sisters, remember what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, influential, or of noble birth. Now, how does that make you feel? Is that Steve is being rude to me? He's telling me I'm not wise. That's a bit rich. Well, are you wise? Am I wise? Do I really, do we know enough? And if I do, then wisdom? Hmm, how much have I got? Maybe I could do with some humility. We'll come to that in a bit. Okay? So remember what you were. And then there is some of the... Um, yeah, I guess the most striking words that appear in the Bible. I mean, this little tiny phrase, two words, appears many times, but it's really, really important. So, not many of you were of noble birth, but God. And then explains what God has done. So there's a huge contrast. The world values, you know, the wisdom and the smartness and wealth and power and all the rest of it. But God value something else. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So it's not just that being wise and strong doesn't really help, doesn't get you to meet God, doesn't make you acceptable. Actually, Paul is saying here that God very specifically chooses the things that we really, really don't expect to be considered as valuable. And God use, chooses and uses the weak and the seemingly worthless to make a point that that is not what he's looking for. So if you think that you are strong and wise, God's choice is for the other, the weak and the not wise. Because God's making a point that if you think you're wise and powerful, then that's all about you. That's you relying on your strength, your wisdom, your power. And if you, or if I, do that, then okay, I'm relying on my power. So where's God's power in any of that? Can I save myself? No. And if I think I can, because of my wisdom and my power, whatever flavor of those things we're, we're relying on, if I think that's going to save me, then I'm lost. And God is making the point here that if you think your wisdom and power 
your heroic character, whatever, is enough to save you, then you'll be put to shame because it will not save you. God chooses the seemingly weak stuff. Or actually, is it the seemingly weak or is it the, the actually the weak? It's actually the weak to shame the strong. So God's preference is for the weak and the not wise, the foolish. Whoops. So earlier in this passage, the bit we didn't read, Paul lays into the, the strong and the weak more. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made the foolish, sorry, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness, foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. So this bit is just before the bit we read earlier, so jumping around a little. So this is 1 Corinthians 1.20. But that idea that what the world thinks is wise is not enough to save the world or to save me as an individual. And God's wisdom looks like foolishness because it's, it's Christ crucified. How can that be a smart way to save the world? The world thinks that that's just nuts. Jews particularly looking for a powerful sign to demonstrate God's power and in this context to kick out the Romans. And, you know, and maybe today we think God is going to do some radically powerful thing which will transform things. Well, he does do that for sure, can do and will do. But does he save through might and power like that? Or does he save through some clever intellectual super smart wisdom? Well, that's what the Greeks were looking for. You know, and in some parts of the world, Cambridge would be one. Being smart and clever, that's what will save you and the world. Well, God says no. Foolishness, seeming foolishness and weakness is what saves. And I mentioned before that this passage tells us about God's heart. And it really does. It shows us that God values those who look to him and do not trust in their own resources. So if we trust our own power and strength and wisdom, then we have trouble. But God values, in fact, God chooses, has strong preference for the humble and the frail. In fact, we read in, in elsewhere in the New Testament, in, in Peter's, one of Peter's letters, Peter quoting says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, and that opposing the proud, that's pretty strong language. So if we're proud because we think we're smart and powerful and wise, then it's not just that God ignores us. He opposes the proud. And when we think about this wisdom and, you know, smartness, okay, we might think, well, I'm not like that. You know, these arrogant professors in Cambridge, you know, Richard Dawkins, who writes books about 
well, he's not in Cambridge, he's Oxford, but, you know, let's not go there. Um, you know, his books absolutely fiercely opposing the notion that there could be a God, and if there was, then he should be ignored anyway because he's bad. I mean, that arrogance of wisdom, supposed wisdom, well, we're not like that. No, we're not. <laughs> but actually, we, we do, and our friends and our neighbours and the circles we move in, we all have measures by which we think we're okay and we're doing enough, and actually, I'm not as terrible as those other people. Okay, probably not. I'm not arrogant like, you know, the new atheists in quotes like Richard Dawkins. No, we're not like that. But we still are thinking we're self-sufficient. And we might say, you know, even from a position of weakness, we, we can have a smug satisfaction that because we're, you know, not super wise and we're not rich and we're not powerful, then that somehow gives us a badge of honour because we can make out that we're kind and nice, and that's enough. Well, no, it's not. So whatever we rely on, so in here it's characterised as the Greeks and the, and the Jews, whatever we might think we're relying on, that's not enough. So believing what God says and does is what we need. So God's character is revealed in this passage. So this is a little bit later on in, in the same chapter. God shows the things that the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Because, because of him you are in Christ, who has become the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let him. The one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the phrase I'm going to focus on for this little section here is about boasting. So Paul writes, and he's quoting from Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul obviously likes this phrase because he uses it elsewhere in, in Corinthians. And he talks a lot about boasting about the strength of the flesh and how smart we are and your qualifications and all that. But he uses this quote twice. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And remember, it's the lowly and despised and rejected things, the lowly in the first bit of this, this little section here, that are the, are the people who God finds acceptable. And it's God's action. So we are in Christ, but we should then boast in, in the Lord. And this is the quote in Jeremiah expanded a bit. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise... Again, the wise, let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strengths, nor the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understood, sorry, they, they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. But in these I delight, declares the Lord. So if we're going to boast, not about riches and wisdom and power, and even if we think we don't have much of those things, then we do have underlying pride that makes us think that we're kind of okay and we're good enough. But we should boast in the Lord. Boast that we know that he exercises kindness, justice and righteousness. 
And those are things that God delights in. So, if we're not going to be boasting in our power and might and all of that, then does that mean that we're just useless? So on my title slide at the very, very beginning, I said, unnamed and therefore unimportant. So the Christians who are in this, this church here that Paul is writing to in Corinth, you know, remember what you were. You weren't influential or important. Now, you might think, and you're still not important or influential. But he doesn't say that at all. He's reminding them of where they were, but the, the counter to that is where they are now. So they are in Christ now, and that is a completely different position. And Paul talks about where, where the Christians are, where we're standing, even though we were uninfluential, not wise, not powerful. So this, this is the position of the Christian now. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's rather a transformation from being the lowly, despised and rejected of the world. Raised up and seated in the heavenly realms. Okay, that's quite a promotion. Pretty good. And he did that in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So those Corinthians who were unimportant and lowly and all the rest of it, they weren't saved because of their power and might. We all know that. And we all know this next little bit. It's not by our wisdom. It's for by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And there's that boasting phrase again. So I, Paul likes the boasting word. <laughs> but it's not boasting about our own skill and might. Absolutely the opposite. It's remembering the grace that God has given us. So even though the Corinthians and us and the vast majority, you know, the overwhelming majority of Christians throughout the ages are unnamed heroes. Not just unsung, unnamed, completely unnamed and anonymous in history. And, you know, most of us will be like that. But we have a purpose, which is this next little bit. So we are saved by grace, for we are God's handiwork. So even though we are lowly, despised and rejected in the world's eyes, because we're not superheroes, we're not heroes, most of us, of any kind, but we are God's handiwork. Now, handiwork, okay, it's made by someone's hand. So the handicraft, if you're doing sewing or knitting or something, that's a designer with skill making something. That's the idea here. God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So if you're thinking, well, I'm one of those unwise, unrecognized, lowly, maybe rejected, possibly despised Christians, like the ones Paul was writing to, well, that might be true. But it's only half the story, in fact, less than half the story, 
because we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and we are his handiwork with a purpose. So there are good works which God has planned for us to do. Now, whether those good works count as heroic works doesn't matter because they're the things that God has prepared for you and for me to do. So if God's prepared that for me to do and I do it, then I've done what he wanted. Does anybody else notice? Doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that I do the good works that God has prepared for me to do. And the good works that he's prepared for me are really, really different from the good works that he's prepared for you. I can't do what you should do, and you can't do what I should do. Now, that's partly because we're very different, and we have different skills and different environments and all the rest of it. But more importantly, God has prepared the good works for you, for you to do. He didn't prepare good works for you that I should do. I mean, that's nonsense. They're for you. So you should do them. And I should do the ones he's prepared for me. Okay? So this passage, which we've jumped around quite a lot in, talks to us about how we relate to God. And it's not on the basis that we are wise or influential in any sense. Now, we've you know, talked around the fact that most of us probably don't think we're wise, but we do think we're right most of the time. You know, you, you will have views, and some of you express your views forcefully sometimes, about the behaviour of your neighbours, or your family, or your work colleagues, or someone you see on telly, or the government. You know, we all have views on all of those things, and if the whoever it is, neighbour, relative, family member, whatever, if they're doing something we disagree with, we might tell them, but we think we're right and they're wrong. Okay? We all do that. So although we might not think we're wise, we think we're right. Okay? And we apply that in our relationship to God as well. We think he should do certain things and not do certain things. And he should sort out those stupid neighbours of mine and he should bless me with this, that or the other. We do think that. I do. Okay, you might not admit it, but I do that sometimes. But actually, that's me thinking I'm right and God needs to do something about whatever the situation is. But actually, God's wisdom is far, far greater than my wisdom. And I need to be humble enough to recognise that. Now, that is a challenge. Real big challenge. Okay? But, you know, we have to recognise God is God and we are not. So there's a, there's a song um, which we've, we've sung many times. I'm not going to sing it today. It has a line in it uh, addressing God as if you should do things my way. Okay, so we, we often say we want God to, to act in a certain way because we think we know what's the best. But if God did things our way, actually it would be a complete disaster 
So recognizing that God is God and we are not, even though we are humble and lowly, he is God. And we can only approach him on the basis of his action. And uh, this is the clue. We read it in Ephesians. It's, it's God's grace. And some more. And then some more. And then, yeah, you get the idea. So this affects how we see ourselves. Yes, we are. Almost all of us. You know, not wise, not influential, not powerful. But all of us are God's handiwork. Okay, so if you're thinking that you know, there's something deficient and lacking, well, you're still God's handiwork and he has things for you to do. Things that only you can do. No one else, not a single person can do those things. Only you. It also affects how we relate to each other. Because the person sitting next to you is also God's handiwork. Okay? Everyone. So, now you're you're probably sitting next to people you get on quite well with, so that's fine. But there will be people in church who annoy you. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to look anywhere. <laughs> yeah, there will be. Well, there are. Almost certainly there are people in this, in this congregation who annoy you. Now, hopefully they don't annoy you very much, but they are God's handiwork. And so are you. Okay, so when you talk to the annoying person remember they are God's handiwork now they have responsibilities because they have some good works that they should be doing and they should be becoming more Christ-like so they should stop being annoying but you have a responsibility to treat them as precious children of God God's handiwork okay so we're nearly done with the sermon part um, so the no boasting is a really key concept here. We can't boast about our skills and attributes because everything we have is from Christ. After all, we are created as his handiwork, but we only come to him because of his grace, through his grace. And although you know, the lowly things that Paul was writing to, the lowly people of Corinth, the lowly church members, who, you know, by the world standard, you know, not that significant. To say that the church members in Corinth and here and around the world are despised and rejected, well, that might be true. But those phrases might ring a bell in your head. So this passage tells us God values the lowly. In fact, he uses, chooses and uses the lowly to shame the wise. And God's heart is for the weak and the humble the lowly, the rejected. So that's us. That's reassuring. And God shows his heart by becoming lowly and rejected and despised. Okay? So Jesus on the cross, ultimate rejection. And that is the clearest illustration of God's heart. 
and elsewhere in Corinthians, we read this. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, this is God's action to save us and our neighbours and everybody. Okay. So we're going to sing a couple of songs in response to that. And, and all of them talk about um, the mechanism by which God saves us. Now that sounds a bit kind of dry and dull. But remember that it's in Christ and it's Christ's work. So the first song we're going to sing is At the Cross. <laughs>